Now, yesterday, a bunch of crazy people across the state of Texas stopped everything they were doing around lunchtime and went and stood outside and stared at the sun. Have you ever seen? I was one of them. I had stopped at the gas station, got me some of those blackout glasses, and from about 11.30 to 12.15, I was outside on the porch every five minutes looking up at the sun. We were in Houston, and so I didn't have probably quite as good a view as you did, but I was with my family, and so I got my niece and nephew out there, and they were looking at the, uh, the sun, and my sisters were looking at the sun, and my mom and dad were looking at the sun, and it's crazy how the, the moon in the annular eclipse slowly pivoted across the face of the sun. So bizarre. I've been thinking about it since then, that God created the sun and moon to work in a delicate dance. He says that he created the sun to provide us light during the day and the moon to give us light at night. The way they provide light is different according to their nature. The sun has light within itself. It's a flaming hot ball of gas. And even though I saw the moon pass in front of it, when I took off my shades, it's still sunny outside. The sun is bright and it gives off light. It cannot cease but to shine. Likewise, the moon in its nature does not have light within itself, but was created by God to reflect the sun's light back to earth. And usually it works perfectly. Like 30 days cycle of the moon waxing and waning, shining and disappearing. But then one day a year, some special group of people somewhere on earth get to see the moon and earth reverse where the moon that was created to reflect the sun's light onto the earth actually obscures the sun's light. It actually passes in front of it in a way that we cannot see the sun as we normally do. It's really interesting. And if you'll let me make an imaginative leap as preachers often do, I think we see something similar to that happening in this passage. And listen, Jesus says that you are and we are called to be the light of the world. He told his disciples, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but they set it on a lampstand so it gives light to the whole room. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they see your good works and give praise to your Father who's in heaven. You're created to shine a light, but it's not your light. It's God's light shining through you. The church is created to shine a light. And we're accountable to God to let our light shine. But this light doesn't come from within us. It originates in God and what he's done for us in Jesus. And when we are operating at our healthiest, we are like the moon, which reflects the light of the sun to the world as we shine the light of the gospel towards the people around us. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. According to the blueprint that God gives us about a healthy church, a healthy church upholds and holds out the gospel for the world. We're not getting people to join our church for our church's sake. We're not renovating our church for our church's sake. We don't identify leaders for our leader's sake. Everything we do, we do for the sake of the gospel so that people would see God in and through us. So let me prove it to you. I'm going to show you actually two ways we hold up and hold out 
the gospel for the world. But first, let me remind you of some context. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to his young protege, Timothy, who he'd left behind in the city of Ephesus. Paul had planted the church there, had spent almost three years preaching the gospel there, but God had called him away into Macedonia to continue his work of evangelism and church planting, and he'd left Timothy behind, seeing the church in Ephesus. There were some false teachers who had arisen and were leading God's people astray, getting their focus off of the light of the gospel and on to what Paul calls endless genealogies, myths, and old wives' tales. And so Timothy's task was to stay in Ephesus, firmly planted in the task that God had given him, bringing the people back to their firm foundation of solid doctrine, teaching them what their priorities ought to be when they gather and the attitudes they need to bring to worship, and how to identify the shepherd and servant leaders their church needs. So Paul reiterates this task in verse 14. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. See, Timothy's task was urgent. And either Paul had left Ephesus so quick that he hadn't been able to give him all the details, or more likely, he had given him all the details, but the conditions of his trip had changed and he saw that it was potential that he wasn't gonna be able to make it back as quick as he wanted. And so he sent a letter to reiterate for Timothy's benefit and so that Timothy could stand in front of the church and read this letter and have the Apostle Paul over his shoulder giving him a big attaboy for everything he was trying to do. So Timothy's task is urgent. And the reason it's so urgent is because the changes needed to be made in the church could it wait. The very identity of God's people was at stake. If they continued down the path of following the false teachers and getting distracted from what God wanted to do in them, the church was doomed to failure. So Timothy needed to get to work and he needed the instructions Paul gave him. Paul knew the church was called to hold out the gospel to the world and they were at risk of abandoning this purpose. And so he refocuses their attention in verses 14 to 16 by reminding them of two ways they uphold and hold out the gospel for the world. Right, the first way, if you're taking notes, the first way they hold out the gospel to the world is by the life they live, by the lives we live. You see that in verse 15. He says, he's written these things, hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I've written for the purpose so that you would know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Listen, the nature of the church demands that we live the kind of lives that are pleasing to God. The nature of the church demands that we live the kind of lives that are pleasing to God. Paul says he's desperate that people would know how to conduct themselves in God's house. So what kind of conduct is he talking about? We, we have church manners, don't we? Like we try to impress these on our children. No running in church, sit up straight, Act like you're paying attention. You're not gonna remember anything. Color, draw, focus. Are these the kind of rules Paul's worried about? No, I don't think so. I don't think he's got a checklist of minding your P's and Q's when you walk on the church grounds. I think he's talking about a whole way of life. In fact, it's a way of life that's reflective of the values you hold as a person. What kind of guiding principles determine the way you live your life? According to Paul, the guiding principles that guide the church's life are all found in the gospel. That there's a way of life that's appropriate to who we are as God's household, as a church. 
and as a pillar and foundation of the truth. He gives us this threefold description of our identity and the manner of life he calls us to live are true to those things. Number one, he says that we're God's household. We're God's household. I hope you're following along with me. We're in verse 15. That the church is God's household. Now, the Greco-Roman world, the household was the fundamental building block of society. It was the family, the mom, the dad, the kids, but it was also the business that operated from within the family's home, so the family's trade. It included any servants who belonged to the family or anybody who was employed by the business. All of this home economy made up the Greco-Roman household. And the person at the top of the household was a master. The master set the rules for the household. Dads, we only wish we had the authority, the Greco-Roman paterfamilias, but we do not. And our families constantly remind us that we do not. But they had unlimited authority. Their word was law. They determined punishments. They determined rewards. They gave out assignments. And they controlled their family until their kids were almost 60 years old. Can you believe it? Yes, look it up. But here's the thing. Paul says the church is God's household. That here we are, servants of Christ, the family of God, under the leadership of our master. He makes the rules. He sets the punishment. He gives the rewards. He assigns the tasks. We are God's household, and we ought to act like it, live like it. He says, number two, that we're the church, the living God. Church is a Greek word, ekklesia, which defines people who are called out and united in a whole new thing. What God has done in our lives is he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous life. He'd certainly done that in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus is a, an amazing place. as a melting pot full of people of all kinds of backgrounds united by common faith in Jesus. When they heard this term, church, they knew what it meant. They knew that they belonged to something new and different, that they'd been brought up as a pagan, worshiping at the temple of Artemis of the Ephesian. But God had called them out of their pagan lifestyle and he had placed them in a new group of people, a new called out family, the church, had Jews raised under the law of Moses and they had found liberty in Christ. They were distinct, they were called out. There was clear boundary markers dividing the church from the world. They called it baptism. And it distinguished a person who had decided to follow Jesus. The church, but that's not all they are. They're not just the household, they're not just the church. They are the pillar and foundation of the truth. I can't help but imagine that as soon as the Ephesians heard these words come out of Timothy's mouth. Hey, guys, listen up. Paul says y'all are a pillar and foundation of truth. They got what Paul meant. Most magnificent building in all of Ephesus set on a high hill. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People came from all around to see it. It was a magnificent temple built to Artemis of the Ephesians. Around the outside of this ancient Roman temple were 230 pillars. Each one had been donated by an ancient king. Some were encrusted with gold and rubies and other fine jewels as they gave offerings to Artemis, the fertility goddess of Ephesus. Those pillars are so amazing. When the Christians tore down 
the temple to Artemis. They reused some of the pillars in the Hagia Sophia church. Today it's called the Blue Mosque. And uh, magnificent tall pillars. And it's like Paul is saying to the Ephesian Christians. You think that temple's great? Think about what God is doing in you. That our God is not confined to a building made by human hands. But instead he has called men and women to himself. And by faith in Christ, he is fashioning them as living stones into a temple, a place where his spirit can dwell. And that that's exactly what you are. God is among you. That wherever two or more are gathered, there he is. And when you gather to worship, it's as if God is taking up residence in a house, in a beautiful, magnificent temple. That's what you are. You're a pillar in God's temple and you're upholding not a roof, but you're upholding the truth. You're providing stability for it. You're hanging on to it and preserving it from generation to generation. That is who the church is. That is our identity. And because of that, there's a certain kind of life that we ought to live. Do we live as members of God's household? Do we live as men and women called out of the dark world and united together in the church? Do we live as pillars and buttresses of truth. Thankfully, the Bible describes for us the kind of life that is consistent with that identity. Here are just three elements of the kind of life when we live it, we're holding out the gospel for the world. Number one, that we're called to live a life of faith. Think about this, a life of faith. Now, you, you know faith really well. When you heard the gospel message for the first time, you repented and you believed. You expressed faith and trust in the promise God had made to you in the gospel. You heard the truth that God created our world and he prepared a place in it for people. And in fact, he created you for perfect fellowship with him. But you have gone astray. You've turned from his way to your own way and you've made a mess of your life. The just punishment for that kind of rebellion from a holy God is eternal separation from him. But God didn't leave you to suffer that punishment. Instead, he enacted a plan to save you and rescue you and reconcile you to him. A plan that Paul describes in Romans 1.16 like this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. So you are in such a sorry state that there was no hope that you could save yourself. There was no way for you to undo all the wrongs you had committed and to earn your way to God. But what God did was he sent his son Jesus to live a sinless life and to die on the cross to suffer the penalty for your sins and then he raised him from the dead so that he could extend to you an incredible invitation. That if you confess your sins and turn from a life of rebellion and place your faith completely in Jesus, you'd be saved. On what basis? By grace alone. Just by the sheer overflow of God's mercy and grace toward you, not because of anything you've done, lest you boast, 
but it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's a gift of God. So you know faith. You come to Jesus and you place your complete confidence and trust in him. But faith isn't just the one-time thing. Like I prayed the prayer and I trusted Christ and I'm good. But in fact, every day must be lived by faith. Paul says it like this in Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, the kind of life that upholds and holds out the truth of the gospel for the whole world to see is a life that wholeheartedly expresses trust and dependence on God, a life of faith. Not a life that says, hey, I can make it on my own. I can do it. I'm self-sufficient. I've got the resources I need to live the life I wanna live. I don't really need God. I got saved and I'm set. The life that reflects the glory of God like the moon reflects the sun is a life that constantly points back to God and says, every day for me, I walk by faith and not by sight. I am constantly relying and trusting on Jesus for every decision I make. I am trusting him. My faith is resting in him alone. Got to live a life of faith. Number two, we're called to live a life of holiness. If we're going to be the church, the called out ones, our lives have to be distinct from the people around us. And that distinctiveness, that set-apartness, that consecration is what the Bible calls holiness, to be set apart for God. And holiness is the universal expectation for people who call themselves Christians. Holiness is not something that the super religious elite attain to. It is something that God produces in us and declares over us. We're called to live a life of holiness. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 4, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1.27 that you need to live worthy of the gospel. I love the way Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, there's some household language, as obedient children, do not be conformed to your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. And so I think this is where the annular eclipse helps us to think pretty clearly about the lives we live. Now Jesus fully expects in Matthew 5 that there's gonna be something distinctive about his people that everybody notices. There's gonna be some good works present in their life. Later, he's gonna say, they're gonna know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Jesus believes that we're gonna live such different lives in the world that people are gonna take notice. But I would just ask you, how different are our lives from our unbelieving friends? Are the words that come out of our mouth all that different? 
We just feel a little more guilt when we say them. The way we treat our families, is, that, is there a distinctive way to be a Christian parent that everybody knows? Well, hey, they're Christian parents. They wouldn't do that. The way we treat our spouses, things we watch on the TV, the kind of music we listen to, things we do when no one else is around. No, like the moon passing in front of the sun, ungodly lives obscure the glory of God more than anything else in the church. Now, if we'd be God's household, we'd live by his rules. We'd say, I delight to do your will. Create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a steadfast spirit so that I want to obey. So that, God, I want to do different. I want to live differently. I want to live in a way that pleases you. I want to live a holy life. If we hold out the gospel, we must live holy lives. And number three, we must live lives of love. Lives of love. Apostle John says it best, I think, in 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we've loved God, but that God loved us and gave his own son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. Like the essence of it all is love, isn't it? If I speak in the tongues of angels, if I offer my body to be burned as a martyr, and yet I have not love, I'm nothing. If I have perfect theology, understand the deepest mysteries of the faith. If I can stand up here and say some words in a compelling way so that people leave with the emotional response of having felt something. But I don't have love, I'm nothing. Without love, we're nothing. We're a community service organization. Love is everything. If we would be the household of God, the called out people of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, if we would uphold and hold out the gospel of the world, it would be by the kind of lives we live. That the way we live would so reflect the glory of God that the people around us would have to take notice. Oh, look at how they love each other. Well, I would never think to say those kind of words around them. I know how they feel about it that we would be a sanctifying and purifying presence wherever we go and whatever we do. That we would walk not content in our own strength, not to do what we can do, but trusting completely in God so that at the end of it all, he gets the glory and not us. So the church upholds and holds out the gospel by the way we live our lives. But number two, it's by the mystery we confess. Now this is like two wings of an airplane. St. Francis of Assisi's quoted as saying that we ought to preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And my first point kind of lends itself towards that. 
that it's by the life we live. And hey, maybe it's not so important to talk about theology. Just let people see the kind of life you live and then they'll know God. But it's two wings of an airplane. You need both to take flight. It's the life you live and it's the mysteries you confess. See, Paul has talked a lot to us about the practical life stuff of church. And he's gonna get back into it. Next chapter, chapter five and chapter six. But right here in verses 14 to 16, he peels back the curtain and lets us see the animating force of the life God's called us to live. It's like, have you ever seen those National Geographic documentaries about the rainforests or Amazon jungles? I love those things. I love monkeys. I'm fascinated by chimpanzees. I'll watch anything about chimps, okay? But it's amazing to me when they're on the forest floor in these rainforests, how dark it is. I mean, they're, they're covered by millions of leaves, trapping the light up above the canopy, creating this unique biosphere. It's all hot and humid, and there's bugs and snakes and animals and all kind of stuff. And if you were only on the floor of the rainforest, that's all you knew of the world. You would have such a tiny sliver of a picture of how things really were. But if you climbed those trees and got your head through the leaves, everything would be totally different. The sun is shining, there's a breeze blowing, it's, there's, you know, it's easy to breathe, it's amazing. And I think that's what Paul is doing in verse 16. Like, hey, we got a lot of nitty gritty details we need to talk about when it comes to healthy churches, but let's climb up above the canopy and let's put our eyes on the sun. Let's see the thing that gives these plants life. Let's see the thing that drives our focus and our mission as a church. Paul says, undeniably great is the mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh, that he was vindicated in the spirit, that he was seen by angels, that he was preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul peels back the curtain and shows us this early confession of what the Christians believed about Jesus. It's actually done poetically with symmetrical and parallel language. Six lines coupled together into groups of two. The first two go together, the second two go together, and the last two go together. Many commentators believe this poem would have been put to a hymn and the church would have sang it together and therefore this is something that all the Ephesians knew. This is like one of the greatest hits in their church's worship team's repertoire. It's like, come behold the wondrous mystery, amazing grace, or how great thou art. These people loved this song. And that's where the word undeniably comes in. I don't know how your Bible translates it. The Greek word refers to something that is universally agreed upon. So that if you got everybody in a, in a room, nobody would deny that these things are true. Uh, the New American Standard Bible says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. What Paul is talking about in verse 16 seems a little strange and foreign to us. Okay, it's like it doesn't fit an easy chronological pattern of what we know about Jesus' life. It's brought together thematically. We're gonna talk about that in a second. But I'm telling you, all these people knew and believed what Paul was about to say. He finds an area of common ground, something that unites them all and fuels 
everything they do as they uphold and hold out the gospel. And so what is it? What is this mystery? What is the essentials of the faith that gives the church its animating life? Well, these three couplets each explain to us the work of Jesus and its ongoing effects. So it's going to focus our attention on what Jesus did and how people responded to it, what happened after he did it. And it does it by putting these couplets together, one focusing on the earthly dimension of Jesus' work or the response to it, the other on the heavenly dimension of Jesus' work and response. And so we'll take it couplet by couplet. The first couplet speaks to the work of Jesus revealed in heaven and earth. The work of Jesus revealed in heaven and earth. He says, he was manifested in the flesh. Manifested in the flesh. This manifestation is the birth of Jesus. It's what we've been singing about and reading about all morning. That the pre-existent Son of God, who was with God in the beginning and who was God, at some time that night in Bethlehem was born a baby and began to cry. He entered into our human weakness and frailty. The Bible is clear about this. Paul says it in Philippians 2 that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the manifestation of God in human flesh, the incarnation. What Paul says in Galatians 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because when you boil down the basics of our faith, I hope you get real quick to Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. I hope you know that that is an essential and undeniable truth. That if Jesus Christ is not God in the flesh, we've got a major problem. That we have no hope, that our faith is built on a lie. So we gather together, sing the songs, read the scriptures, and remind ourselves of this most basic truth. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. But Paul also says he was vindicated in the spirit or by the spirit. And this vindication is the heavenly reality when it comes to Christ's work revealed. And that after Jesus lived his sinless life, he offered himself up as a sacrifice at Calvary. And he was buried in a tomb and lay dead for three days. But on the morning of the third day, God spoke the word and by the power of the Spirit, Spirit, he raised Jesus to life. That resurrection is significant because it vindicated to his disciples especially and to the whole world that all that he said he would do, he had done. That he said, hey, all the scriptures tell you guys what's supposed to happen. The son of man's gonna be betrayed and he's gonna be handed over to sinners and he's gonna die and on the third day he's gonna rise again. And they said, he's crazy. He's not gonna rise again. Maybe someday when God raises up all the righteous. But in fact, Jesus had been risen by the power of the spirit and his disciples saw him. We have seen his glory. John says in 1 John 1 that what we have seen, what we have beheld, what we have touched, we proclaim to you. They touched him. They put their fingers in his side. They knew that all the things they had hoped Jesus could do, he had done. And the Spirit testified to them of its truthfulness. But it's not just the work of Christ revealed, it's the work of Christ proclaimed. 
Paul says next that he was seen by the angels. And I believe that this refers to the angels accompanying Christ's resurrection. That when the women went to the tomb, who do they see but the angels? He is not here. He's risen. They proclaimed the good news of Jesus' resurrection. I think it also refers to what happened when Jesus went to heaven and received from God his authority and his place at his right hand. The angels fell down and worshiped before him. That God proclaimed to the angels, this is my son and I'm giving him the name that's above every name. If anybody's getting praise in heaven, I want it to go to him. But not just seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Proclaimed among the nations. And Jesus had told his disciples that I'm sending you to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And that's exactly what the disciples did. As soon as he ascended into heaven, they went back to Jerusalem to wait on the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, they spilled out into the streets, speaking in all kinds of languages, and the people who gathered there for the Passover heard the gospel for the first time. They were cut to the quick. They repented, expressed faith, and that day, 3,000 people were saved. Many of them stayed in Jerusalem, but some of them went back home, and they took the good news with them. Eventually, the church in Antioch raises up Saul and Barnabas and sends them out to plant churches and preach the gospel all around the Mediterranean world. And the other disciples did the same thing. Church tradition tells us that Thomas made it all the way to India. There were believers in Jesus in China. This is what the Bible says happens. That wherever the gospel goes, the nations, the different people groups of the world come to see the truth about Jesus and they not only hear it proclaimed, But number three, the work of Christ received, they believe in him. They hear it and they believe it. That is the goal of all preaching, the news about Jesus. It's not just so I have something to do on Sunday mornings. The preaching of the gospel is meant to elicit faith in the hearts of God's people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So every time the gospels proclaimed, the expectation should be that it would be believed, that it would be trusted, accepted, that people would conform their lives to it. But not just as a one-time thing. Like I've graduated beyond the essence of the gospel. But that those of us who've been walking with Jesus a long time would be reminded of the truth of Jesus so that it would continue warming our hearts and changing our minds, so that we would be conformed into his image to follow in his steps. And the heavenly reality of Christ's work received is that he was received in glory. That when Christ ascended into heaven, the Father gave him the seat at his right hand and bestowed on him a name that's above every name. He exalted him above all rule and authority so that he could fill all things. This is the mystery of our faith. These are the basics, the things we always come back to, the foundation of all that we are as a church family. All that we hope to accomplish is a result of our trust and confession of this mystery. You know, if we would be a healthy church, Paul says, it is this mystery that we must constantly uphold and hold out so that when people come to church, Now, I hope you bring friends and family to church to hear the gospel. I can promise you, they might not hear a great sermon. They're going to be be hearing the gospel. 
They're going to hear it in the songs we sing. They're going to hear it in our public scripture readings. They're going to hear it in every sermon. I'm going to make a beeline for the cross. Because what else do we have to talk about? What else do we have to preach but to confess the mystery again and again? If we would be a healthy church, we would live lives that reflect the glory of God just as the moon reflects the light of the sun. That we would be so distinct, that we would make such a break with the past life we lived before Jesus that everybody would take notice and see. You know that begins when a person trusts Jesus for the first time. The life that we're talking about has to have a starting point, a, a moment in time when you look at the life you've lived. You say, you know, I thought when I started down this path that it was gonna get me where I wanted to be. And now I'm here and I'm more miserable than I've ever been in my life. The Bible puts words to that experience that's common to all of us. It says that there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is death. And each of us has to come to that place where we're tired of all the death. We're tired of the mess. We're tired of trying to turn over a new leaf and ending up worse off than we were before. That we have to come to see Jesus who came into our brokenness not to show us a way out, but to actually do the work of reconciling us to God by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on the cross and offering himself as a ransom for all and rising from the dead, proving to us that he is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do and who gives us his spirit and who even communicates to us through his word, reminding us that if we're weary and heavy laden, that we can come to him and find rest. That we can take his yoke upon us and we can learn from him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light and we'll find rest for our souls. And in this morning, if you have never done that, if you have never come to Jesus confessing your sin and trusting in him completely, there is no other hope for you to live the kind of life you're desperate to live. And this morning, I'd love to help you figure out how to make a mark, make a distinct shift in your life by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. I'd love to lead you through a simple prayer of commitment that would help you do that. And I'm gonna be in the back at the end of service and I'd love to speak with you about that. But church family, I wanna give you a moment to reflect as well. Will you bow your heads with me as I ask you a couple of questions? I wonder this morning if you are honest with yourself before God Would you say that you're living the kind of life that reflects the glory of God to the people around you or are you living the kind of life that obscures it? That clouds people's perception and understanding of what it means to know God and follow him. The second question I would ask you is, then what needs to change in your life? If you know of an area where you're not living the kind of life of faith that we talked about or the life of holiness, the life of love, what needs to change? I challenge you this morning to say a simple prayer, confession to God, 
admitting to him what he already knows, and then asking him to empower you by his spirit to live a life that pleases him.